Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk about a couple of different things in the same episode, go through the second round of the playoffs, where it stands right now, where we're looking forward to it going in the future, and also a little bit about the offseason, particularly for some of the teams that are on the outs right now. And so the perfect person to talk to about that is Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated. We had a, a, a great conversation, runs for about an hour. We focus more on the playoffs early and then late. We talk about Toronto's offseason, and we talk about what we're looking forward to in the lottery. Apologies for this episode is, is going to be more lightly edited than a usual Real Jam Radio because we recorded it on Sunday morning and I have to head over to Nate Duncan's to do the Twitter NBA show. So it's a, a quicker turnaround, but it's a wonderful episode and I don't think it needs that sort of editing anyway. And it is brought to you by SeatGeek, my go-to for buying and selling tickets. You download the free SeatGeek app and then use the promo code REALGM to get a $20 rebate on your first order. The conversation with Ben runs, I think it's about an hour five, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. How's it going, man? Good, good. So I think that there is kind of a sense of where this is going, maybe not even specifically in this round, but next round. But speaking only for myself, I've, I've still been enjoying the ride so far. Yeah, I always have a hard time when people complain about the playoffs or complain about the disparity and the the lack of parity. I mean, I definitely get all of it, but I'm at the point where my entire like annual calendar is structured around this time. So it would take something truly horrible probably to ever get me to admit (laughs) that I I wasn't having a good time. I mean, night to night, uh, I think we're seeing some pretty impressive performances by guys. We're getting lots of drama off the podiums, too. And I think that's part of the show now, you know, the postgame press conferences and uh, who's you know getting out front with storylines, whether it's free agency or trade rumors and all that stuff. Uh, so to me, I'm still loving it. I definitely hear the voices who are starting to you know peel off and say, oh, this has been boring, but uh, I'm still all in. Also, I think a good representation of that Tom Haverstrow had the stat, which is a, an amazing stat that all 12 second round games so far have been decided by double digits. But some of those games... A, have been way closer than that. It's just they ended up that way. Warriors Jazz yesterday, we're recording this on Sunday morning, was one of those. And also, you know, a couple of the games in the Spurs Rocket series have been that way, particularly two and three, where, yeah, it ended up being a blowout, but how they got there was really interesting. And, you know, it's it's making me excited for how the rest of the series is going to go. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, kind of hanging over some of that's the injury issues, too, right? I mean, there's been a, a fairly long list of notable guys, whether. You know, George Hill, Kyle Lowry, I think is probably where you start that list. But you can go on from there. Obviously, the probably the most heartbreaking one's Tony Parker. Maybe that one hasn't quite uh, influenced the double digit score yet. But, uh, you know, it, certainly that's a, a hit to the, the San Antonio Spurs. But, uh, you know, I take, you know, for example, game three in Utah last night. I mean, they, they pushed the Warriors pretty good. Uh, if they have George Hill, you know, I'm expecting that would really be a game uh, and potentially one where not only does it go to the last seven minutes like it did but maybe it goes down to the last minute like it could have easily so um you know i think there's some other factors besides just you know the the surface level take which is oh the super teams are killing and everybody else is not up to their uh, standard well that's a good point that it just so happens that the healthiest teams except for that's true i was gonna say but durant missed a couple games so that that's true but the the healthiest teams by and large have been the better teams so that that works out in their favor and 
Yeah, but even the even the Blazers though they didn't have Nurkic, you know, so that's that's another situation too. Where I mean, those aren't equals. Obviously, we'd all take Durant over Nurkic any day, but in terms of uh, you know getting each other at full strength, it didn't really happen. And in terms of survivability of injuries, they're very different because the Warriors just have so much more talent. Exactly. So yeah, I think we can start with with Warriors Jazz, and I've been it's so strange to say when a series is three zero. But I've been very impressed with the Jazz so far. I mean, Gordon Hayward had a rough game one, and I was kind of sitting there going, yo, you know, the Warriors are just not a good matchup for him. They have so many guys with size, good defenders. And then he's had a a strong game two and a strong game three. He was really impressive uh, pretty much throughout the Clippers series. I mean, especially given the fact that he was dealing with, uh, you know, food poisoning. And the real buzz in L.A. here after that series was like, oh, Utah is really going to push the Warriors. They're going to give them a hard time. And I wasn't totally on board with that. And in game one, when it was basically like tough twos for Hayward and and lots of jumpers for Joe Johnson, they were really getting nothing inside at all. And uh, their offense really looked mucked up. Uh, I was pretty worried for them. You know, I thought this this one might get away from them. And, you know, it's tough because you don't ever want to frame it like, hey, at least they kept it close, you know, moral victory. Uh, But Hayward's bounce backs in games two and three in terms of, you know, hitting a lot of tough shots, being more aggressive. Uh, opening things up in the middle in game three for Gobert as well. Uh, you know, I think that's something that you know certainly adds to his reputation. I mean, he's in this situation where he's kind of been clawing up for guys like Jimmy Butler uh, and Paul George in this, you know, who's the best, uh, you know, like second tier wings, I guess, if you want to call him that, uh, around the league. And he's making a pretty good case here. I mean, there's no doubt that this is the worst possible matchup, I think, personnel-wise for him, uh, whether it's in the West or anywhere else. Uh, and he's not going down without a fight. And I think it's done a nice thing. We see this a lot in the playoffs, and I remember this happened with Steph Curry back in 2013, of a guy who in our community is thought of as as a good player gets more shine because they're doing it on a very different stage against different opponents. And I think Hayward has shown that he is deserving of that. Oh, yeah. And I think, uh, to me, the one that I highlight, though, is that Game 7. I mean, I think Game 7 against the Clippers, to me, he was the best player on the court. And that's one of those things you always check mark off, right? Like, you know, Chris Paul struggles down the stretch of that game. I think they just ran out of gas, but that's a road playoff game. Granted, not the most uh, difficult building to play in. Um, but, you know, Hayward clearly had a bunch of adversity in that series. The Jazz had, you know, tons of injury adversity to be able to keep them together, rise to the occasion. Uh, and then down the stretch, kind of deliver that win. I mean, that was you know truly impressive and something he had just never done before. So uh, I think that's going to be my takeaway for him. I think entering the postseason, he was one of those guys where, okay, obviously he's not facing pressure like Draymond or LeBron, but Hayward with the you know, free agency decision, with years of struggles behind him in Utah in terms of gradually building up to this, I thought he was one of the guys who faced you know more pressure than almost anybody, like right there with guys like Isaiah Thomas and. I think even if they get swept, this is a, a home run postseason for Gordon Hayward. I think he pretty much answered it. Uh, he definitely silenced any question about, is this guy a max player or not? I mean, that stuff uh, was silly already, but I haven't really seen a lot of that. I don't know if you have over these last couple of days. Uh, and that's how it should be. I mean, this guy's earned the respect. And uh, I think, you know, hopefully uh, the larger stage is helping other people realize that. No arguments there. And I think Gobert has had a very good series, too. And he, he's made an impact when he's been able to be on the floor, which he has been for the most part. And when you consider, which I forget periodically, that's how well he's played, that he had not only the hyperextended knee and bone bruise, but then the sprained ankle on top of it, that he has been 
impressive, especially in transition, which is amazing to say for the Jazz. But I've also been encouraged by Quinn Snyder. He said after game two, I think I think Nate Duncan actually asked him the question about like basically like, are you guys are having success running? He's like, yeah, we're going to do whatever we need to to win. I've been pushing for the Jazz to run for two years now and they can actually do it. Yeah, it was a little bit disappointing that one of the main storylines coming out of Game 3 was how KD just picked on Gobert in those pick and rolls. I mean, he he really did get him down the stretch, there's no doubt. I mean, Gobert is going to really struggle to go out there and get up in KD's face on a switch. And um, there was one time where Durant got all the way to the basket, turned the corner. A couple times he hit uh, pull-up jumpers or a three-pointer in front of Gobert, who's kind of playing a little bit softer off of him. Uh, and that was kind of one of the big storylines. But like overall, I mean, Utah held Golden State to 102. You know, Steph uh, and Clay are struggling. They're not getting a ton inside. And there's a lot of times those drives are just going nowhere. As soon as they see Gobert, they're they're you know kind of reversing course. Uh, and so to me, I agree. I think he's had a really nice defensive series, given uh, some of the injuries around him and given you know also their lack of depth. I mean, look how many guys Snyder played last night. You know, he basically played. Uh, seven guys. I mean, Favors was hardly out there. Uh, and so for Gobert to kind of hold up in really big minutes, like you're saying, with the injuries, uh, with some of these pacing things that you're talking about, I think has been impressive. Uh, so I guess my frustration was just that, like, he was almost the scapegoat <laughs> yeah. uh, in some of the talk, and that was not accurate. I mean, he had a great game, and he had a great game scoring, too. So, uh, you know, to me, uh, again, if you're looking for moral victories for Utah, you know, this is not a Raptor situation where like the sky is on fire and everything's falling apart and like your main guys aren't showing up and then this is just a disaster and you need to blow it up in the summer. I mean, yes, you're kind of on your the verge of being swept by you know, one of the super teams, uh, but there are positives to take away here. Something that's really impressed me has been, considering he's 7'2 and not the fastest guy in the world, Gobert has been beating his man down the floor a fair amount. And I don't think that's what the Jazz want to make their bread and butter in the regular season just because that's too much strain for him. It's very easy to have JaVale McGee do that. Granted, he has asthma, but have JaVale McGee do that for <laughs> 15 minutes a game then have your star or one of your stars do that for 30 minutes a game. But in the playoffs, in those bursts, I think it's helped their offense a lot because he's been the... It, it's so weird to have a center as the pressure valve on transition, but that's what he's been. Man, and look no further than that dunk that got everybody frustrated in the Bay Area because he was hanging on the rim afterwards. You know, everybody wanted the technical foul. But, I mean, he, he went off the wrong leg at full speed, uh, you know, catches it smoothly and just hammers down a dunk. I mean, that is impressive for a guy that size. And, you know, there are a few other guys around the league who can do that. But very few of those guys are also like defensive player of the year candidates. And his evolution on offense has definitely been one of the biggest stories for Utah this year. You know, Hayward gets the all-star nod because his offense kind of goes up a notch. But um, Gobert certainly was central to uh, you know their overall offensive improvement this year, his consistency and his improvement in pick and rolls. So, uh, you know, I think when we're looking at these teams of like who are antidotes to uh, you know, these spread lineups or can you build, you know, potentially a, a better looking spread lineup in Utah, even uh, having go bear back there is, you know, two way impact. I mean, that's that's how you do it. And if favors were 100 percent, I think he can be an antidote to some of the spread stuff as well, because he moves his feet very well for a guy his size. So he's not perfect. Nobody is. But I think he can do a nice job in those spots. He just isn't that player right now. Yeah, it's been one of the biggest frustrations, too, because, you know, even when like Blake Griffin was healthy in that first round series where, you know, you didn't necessarily know if you could count on favors, uh, favors in that matchup and how many minutes is he going to play and how's it going to work? I mean, we never really got some of these questions answered about like how well can Utah zig when everybody else is zagging. And 
I guess when we look at their salary cap books, we have to wonder, like, are we ever going to get those questions answered? I mean, that's that's sort of their biggest offseason decision, right? Sort of. Yeah, it's that. And then do both of their high profile free agents, George Hill and Gordon Hayward, want to come back? Because there is a huge peril. And I've written about this before, but I think it's very important to reiterate every summer. And the guy who crystallized this for me is LeBron James. It's like you learn a lot about what a player wants on their third contract, because the third contract is the first time for most of these guys that they have free will that they can prioritize whatever they want, they can go where they want, because the second contract is usually either an extension or restricted. And it was for both George Hill and Gordon Hayward. So where they go from here is fascinating. And so they both are making these complicated decisions. Hayward's is a little bit simpler because he knows he's getting max offers wherever he wants to go. And that has money. But George Hill, it's a little more complicated because do the Jazz want to pay him long term? He's a little bit older than the rest of their core. Do they want to give him that? And also, can they afford to lose him? Because presumably Hayward and Hill are going to be are not deciding in a vacuum and Hill returning makes it more likely to bring Hayward in. Yeah, I guess what I was saying with with favors, like his his spot there in the future is like if you want to pay both Hayward and Hill, who are definitely much higher priorities kind of on their star depth chart right now. Uh, something has to give. And I would guess it would probably have to be favors, uh, you know, when you're looking at their salaries. Maybe not. Maybe they can find a way to do it all. But uh, I guess I'd be looking there and saying that's an awful lot of money for uh, a team to kind of you know, keep all these guys together. In terms of your point on Hayward, it's exactly right. And his decision has gotten only more difficult as these playoffs have played along because from the Jazz side, he, they really can't ask for anything more. I mean, they won their first playoff series in seven years. It was full of exciting moments. Hayward got a chance to be the hero, uh, and they got to go toe-to-toe with the West best and, and take their best shot. I mean, that's usually what you're hoping for if you're one of these small market teams trying to keep your star, right? On the flip side, the argument goes, well, uh, a team like Boston is uh, sitting right there with a very compelling pitch, which is right now this NBA is a two-team league, Cleveland and Golden State. And if you want to have a chance to compete with those guys at all, you need to come team up on and, and form a third super team with uh, you know, a Celtics team that very well could make the conference finals. Uh, and that's you know certainly a team that's in a different spot, I think, building-wise uh, than the Jazz are. So his uh, decision, which many people kind of forecast as being pretty difficult here, you know, months ago, has only gotten trickier uh, as you go along. And I think if you're George Hill, the reason why you're in the best leverage position of a lot of these point guards is because uh, you're coming on the heels of uh, the Trey Burke era, right? Like the Utah knows how bad it gets without a competent point guard. Like very personally, Hayward knows how tough it was uh, without anyone who can reasonably hold down that position. And so I think the Jazz are basically in a must-keep mode uh, with George Hill. Uh, their entire plans you know, are basically like if they don't have him, there's not really a good backup option. Their pitch to Hayward is a lot worse. Uh, and so I think from that standpoint – uh, you know, Hill and Hayward are going to be probably communicating more than most free agent teammates ever would. And uh, I think it actually is in their be- their best interest to both stay there. I kind of like what that team is building, but I could certainly understand why they would splinter. Hayward's decision is also fascinating because you can make reasonable arguments for, for both of those locations. I don't think off the top of my head that there's anywhere else that will reasonably have max money that makes a ton of sense for him. 
but Boston certainly does. I mean, and Boston has the kind of mystery box quality that they could, they have so many assets, they could become something very different. And it's entirely possible that Danny Ainge's pitch to Hayward could include, hey, we have the assets to trade for X player. And also at that point, they will have made the pick for with that, with the whatever the Nets pick ends up being. We'll find that out in a, in a week and a half. But they will have made the choice for that Fultz ball, whatever the heck it's going to be. And and they could say, hey, we're going to, we also have a deal in place to trade that for, let's say, Jimmy Butler. I mean, think about that. Think about if you walk into that meeting and you go, okay, you know, me, me on the Jazz, me on the Celtics, those teams are probably close and the, ja- the Jazz are way younger and you could argue they're better. But if they say, oh yeah, well, we're getting another all-star, that totally changes the way you think about it. For sure. I mean, if their lineup next year is Isaiah, Gordon Hayward, let's say Paul George, Horford, and then, you know, throw in whoever's left, that is an awesome team. That's a team that has a chance to really push Cleveland in a way that nobody has this season. I mean, I think we can agree that lineup would be better than Toronto, Washington, or Boston this season, right? Like by a pretty clear margin. And again, that's why this this playoff run for Hayward is so fascinating because Utah really couldn't have asked for more from their run. And yet if you're Boston, like that pitch is only like the more that the super teams win, Boston's pitch only gets more enticing because it's not like Hayward's going to be able to go to Golden State or Cleveland. Right. So if he's really, truly committed to trying to win a title, if that is his major motivation uh, and while he is still maintaining as max money as he can get, that's going to be the spot. And they have the flexibility to put together packages that could increase his title odds in a much better way than Utah could. That's a great point. Let's move on to the other Western Conference series the Spurs and the Rockets. I've really enjoyed this because I think such a big storyline in this has been the adjustments that the coaches have made. And that's part of why I love best of seven series is that you have the time to do this. And so in game one, for a lot of different reasons, beyond them being really good, Houston blitzed the Spurs, got a ton of turnover, shot 53s. And then after that, the Spurs started playing more like the Spurs. Yeah, I picked the Spurs coming into this series. Uh, I think I heard your podcast with uh, with Kevin Pelton where you guys did as well, right? Uh, no, I'll admit- I, I, I went Spurs in seven. I think he went Rockets in six. I'm, oh. not, I'm not sure. I'm not no, no, no. no. He I'm pretty sure. He might I'm pretty Spurs. sure. Yeah, he, I'm pretty sure he went Spurs because okay. I, I texted him about it afterwards. But uh, uh, because I was reading all these Rockets predictions and I was surprised that so many people were picking the Rockets. And I'll be honest, like game one really spooked me. I was like, oh, God, like, well, that's the formula for Houston winning this series, making San Antonio look slow and old and back on their heels. And Aldridge disappears and he doesn't take advantage of his uh, very obvious positional uh, matchup advantage. And, uh, you know, everything falls apart. Uh, but Games two and three were more what I expected the series to look like. I don't know if that's where the series is going to settle. Um, but I did think in in game three, I mean, the big to big passing was beautiful. And uh, you're talking about adjustments. I mean, one way to overcome the loss of, you know, a really talented, you know, playmaker, experienced playmaker and, and, and drive and kick guy and just, you know, deep paint uh, penetrator and Tony Parker is to turn over some of those duties to your other best passers. And lo and behold, Pau Gasol, a guy who a lot of us had written off as, you know, four or five years ago as being a valuable guy comes through huge. I thought in terms of his ability to you know, create offensive opportunities for uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, really take advantage of uh, some of the size mismatches that Houston is kind of uh, courting when they you know play their preferred lineups uh, and really punishing them for it. And uh, I just love that. I mean, that's typical Spurs coaching staff, you know, figuring out where their uh, their benefits are and going right at it. I think, you know, if you're the Rockets, 
you're starting to get nervous because a lot of these supporting guys who were quiet in game three have track records of being quiet throughout their postseason. They either have very limited postseason careers or just limited success in their postseason careers. And if they just fade, you know, if, if it turns into the Harden show, I think we can agree that like the James Harden one man show is not going to overcome the Spurs, not when they can put Kawhi on them, not when they can, uh, you know, kind of gear their defense to taking away as much as possible the easy stuff that he's able to generate for himself. And so uh, to me, all the bullseyes go on the back of guys like, you know, Gordon, Ryan Anderson. I mean, I think we're back in that spot, maybe where some people expected before these playoffs is like, are those guys going to finally be able to step up? And I think you know that the rubber's kind of hit the, the road with those guys right now. And uh, I think ultimately they're going to be the people who decide this series. You know, if Houston's going to have any chance, they have to have a big response. If they don't, I think it's going to be San Antonio series. Something that I've loved in this series so far has been that in many ways, the Spurs solution to what ailed them in game one was a very old school one. And with the idea that if a team is beating you partially by threes, but partially by driving, just put a big guy there and force him to finish over him. And there is a counter to that of basically trying to make a soul defend in space, but that's still a harder thing to do. You can argue that, oh, they should do that with Ryan Anderson at center, and I do think that is something that D'Antoni should try, and we might even see that later today. We're recording this Sunday morning. But it's still easier said than done because Gasol, more so than David Lee, which is part of the reason I hated using him as a starter in Game 1, he brings advantages on the offensive end that Ryan Anderson can't counter. Yeah, the David Lee thing... Uh, thankfully, it seemed like that was uh, shuttered pretty quickly. I mean, it, it did seem like a pretty obvious, like maybe they were just hoping. It's like one of those things sometimes when teams start big and then immediately shift small when it's not working out. Like maybe that's where they were going with that. I don't know. But um, hoping they could get away with it and then realizing very quickly they couldn't. I mean, I think Powell's shown really good d- discipline defensively when Harden's coming downhill. I mean, I, I think I've said previously, like, you know, the cover of the Rockets media guys should just be hard and turning the corner on the pick and roll and how scary of a thought that is. You remember those old Blazers posters with like Terry Porter and Buck Williams, like, uh, you know, running in transition and the tagline said, uh oh, uh, I mean, that's sort of what the same feeling is when Harden turns the corner and, and Powell has handled those situations very well. I mean, he's just kind of retreated, made sure he stayed between Harden and the hoop. And then he's made sure he's gone straight up uh, to make it a difficult shot, like you're saying. You can't really ask much more from a big guy, especially a big guy his age, than that. And I'm surprised it's working so well. You know, he, to me, he's the kind of guy you circle and, and hope to be able to exploit. Uh, and so far, Houston really hasn't quite been able to unlock him. Uh, and I think also credit to San Antonio's perimeter defenders, too. I mean, I expected them to be able to take away a lot of Houston shooting in this series just because they've been doing it for years. Uh, their three-point defense this year was strong. Uh, obviously, it got away from them completely in game one, uh, but they've they've kind of cranked that up in games two and three. And and that also helps your big when you know that, uh, you know, there's, it's not pouring in from every direction. You just kind of have one task. If you're the big defender, the Spurs not turning the ball over is, is another key part of that because the Rockets got so much of what, of game one of their looks in transition and they were being really active, stripping the ball active in passing lanes. And I was just watching that game and thinking, this isn't what the Spurs do. And you always assume that things are going to regress back to their means, whatever that is. And I think the same thing was true with LaMarcus. And it got back to where I thought the series was with that. But at the same point, these teams are so close, small pieces of variance could end up deciding the series. And that's the fun of a balanced playoff series. Oh, yeah. no, And and we all kind of knew this was going to be the best one coming in, right? I mean, I guess if you prefer you know, technical fouls and body blows and that, you, you can make a case for Celtics-Wizards. But I think in terms of like sheer entertainment value, styles clashing... 
Uh, I mean, of course, the history between the two franchises. I think this was the one that had the most storylines around it, not to mention Harden versus uh, Kawhi and, and, you know, MVP debate and all that. But I think it's lived up to the billing. Uh, It's been very unpredictable, though. I mean, it goes back to the double digit stat in in terms of the games that you mentioned is, uh, you know, the swings between these two teams that are you know pretty evenly matched have been wild. And uh, to be honest, it's pretty hard to predict. I agree with you. I, th- I think it is very hard to predict. And I had trouble getting a grasp on where this series was going to go. And I feel like the first three games have justified that discomfort because I don't, as you said, you know, like we'll see where the series settles. I have no idea where this is going. Yeah. I mean, after game three, I looked it up and, and Popovich is 18 and a five all time against D'Antoni. So for whatever that's worth, like if you're looking for a tiebreaker, I mean, that is a strong track record of basically owning a coach. Uh, and, you know, consistently proving that you've got the ability to adjust throughout series. I guess that's kind of my worry with D'Antoni is, isn't he the kind of guy I'll just go down with the ship? You know, I mean, I'm not sure he's got uh, like the depth of counters or really the desire to do radical counters. I think he he likes to play how he's going to play. He didn't seem very upset with how game three went. Like I I didn't get the the vibe from his game three post-game press conference that there was going to be radical changes in order. Maybe he's a really good bluffer. Uh, but to me, he seems like the kind of guy who's going to keep running a car into a wall, even if, uh, it crashes, you know? So we'll see. Uh, again, that's part of the unpredictability. I mean, maybe he's got some tricks up his sleeve, but, um, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm a little skeptical just because of his track record and because of his commitment to his philosophy. It's like, uh, if the guys just don't hit three pointers, it seems like he's willing to just take it and go home. One other big one that I think could rear its head in this series and didn't as much in the OKC is that James Harden is very bad at getting the ball when he doesn't have it. He's very easily denied, and the Spurs are the best ball-denying team in the entire league. And we've seen that for little bits and pieces where like the, it'll get in Lou Williams' hands or Eric Gordon's hands and, and then Harden just won't touch it. But I think that the Spurs can really ramp that up if they have to. And what that's going to do more than anything else is just slow down the Rockets' offense because it'll just burn an extra couple seconds on those possessions. For sure. And I think we saw them get away from their discipline on offense just in general in Game 3, too. I mean, it seemed like a lot more tough shots, a lot more mid-range stuff than uh, earlier in the series. And that's tough. I mean, again, if you're D'Antoni, like, how do you, uh, you know, how do you reset this? Uh, you mentioned Ryan Anderson at the five. I mean, what other lineup adjustments could you even see kind of working for them? I mean, I'm he he's stuck so tightly to the same rotation. Uh, he leans so heavily on his main guys. Uh, I've kind of been struggling. Like, what is his counterpunch? You know, who does he turn to? I be I think Patrick Beverly has done a, a really good job in this series. I think you want to make sure he's on the floor whenever Dejounte Murray's on the floor, which we don't know how much that's going to be. That was rough at the beginning of Game Three. <laughs> Got a little bit better later on, but still, I mean, the fact that he can strip him. And then the problem is that I have in terms of you know scheme stuff is that other than small small pick and rolls to try to get somebody else onto Harden, which is just a, a fundamental goal. Another big problem they have is that they only have one player who can capably even try to defend Kawhi Leonard and I mean unless they want to try like I don't know Sam Decker or somebody like that but Reese is their best shot and that means that you can't really try that many other looks unless you're going to throw doubles and the problem with throwing doubles at the Spurs as somebody who's watched them for eons now is that they collect good passers and if you have good passers, this is, you know, you can't do what the Bucks did to the Raptors for a couple of games or what Cleveland has done blitzing DeMar DeRozan because the other guys are going to make good decisions and they're going to get a basket. And so, yeah, even though the Spurs are probably slower than the Rockets overall, 
they can take advantage of that. And it's it's also way harder, and people who said this sometimes, it's way harder to pressure and double a bigger guy because they can just see over it. Yeah, I mean, that's the story of LeBron, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, to me, Harden uh, is not their biggest problem. I'll just go back to those supporting shooters. I mean, game three... It was Houston season low in scoring. I mean, I think that we should probably treat that as an anomaly. I mean, Lou Williams, I'm looking at the box right now. He's 0 for 4 from the field. Anderson's 0 for 4. Uh, you know, Beverly's 3 for 13. Uh, Nene is 0 for 5. I mean, and Gordon's even 3 for 10. I mean, together, all those guys were like, what, 1 for 9 from threes. I mean, that to me is not like a lot of that San Antonio stepping up for sure. And I think some of that is just like, that's a really bad night. I mean, this is a thrive or die three point shooting team uh, and they died. And and so I think, you know, if, if they're closer to, you know, the mean, like you're saying, I, I think that they're still very competitive in this series, but uh, those guys have got to step up. And I think, you know, I mean, Ryan Anderson's got a track record here of years where uh, he's been a postseason liability. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. And some of these other guys have as well. Lou Williams, I think, has done a pretty nice job of answering some of those questions this year for the first time. Uh, but you have to keep doing it. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with the Rockets. And again, it goes back to D'Antoni. How willing is he to, to, to experiment, to try different things? Uh, so far, he's very tight rotations, huge minutes for the main guys. Uh, we'll see. Before we move on to the Eastern Conference, which has its own drama in its own way uh, with the playoffs, I want to tell you a little bit about SeatGeek. I've been using SeatGeek for years, long before they were a sponsor on Real Jam Radio, Dunked On, or anywhere else, because it is a great product. I became a fan of it in that way and was thrilled when they came on as a sponsor. And I really like, personally, my favorite thing about it is the deal score. And so what deal score is trying to do is that it is attempting to, for whatever you're going to, concerts, theaters, sports, playoff games, a great way to use it, it tries to combine and successfully combines ticket value and ticket price, which not only puts you in a great position to save time to say, you know, they can't say these tickets are perfect for you, but they can say these are your best options. It also does put pressure on sellers because if your pricing has a low deal score, then people probably aren't going to buy it. So it works in both those ways. It puts a little bit of weight on the scale in favor of the buyer. And you can also use SeatGeek because they are an aggregator, which means that you don't have to look multiple places for tickets. You can go to SeatGeek and feel comfortable that they will have the listings you're looking for for whatever event you want to attend. And it's a, a great product. As I said, I've used it since be- since before they were ever a sponsor. And how you can check it out is the free SeatGeek app is probably the best way to do it. And then S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K. And then the promo code, which you enter under the settings tab, is RealGM, just like Real Jam Radio and just like the site I write for. And if you do that, you get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So whatever it is that you want to go to, you just buy it and you have entered the promo code, they'll send you 20 bucks. It's pretty awesome. And you tell them that you came from us as well. So it's a great way of supporting the show. So again, SeatGeek, RealGM promo code, $20 rebate on your first order. We could move on to the Eastern Conference and let's start with Wizards Celtics. And I think that the best way to phrase this series or to frame it is it's kind of like a fun B storyline on a television show. So, you, you know, you you can't spend the entire narrative arc on the main character and what they're going through. Sometimes you have to go into other things. And so it's it might not have a lot of resonance in the long term picture other than the aforementioned Celtics with big free agents part of this. But. I've enjoyed the animosity. I've enjoyed the some of the singular performances. John Wall has been very good overall in the series. Isaiah's game two was 
absolutely spectacular, and I can appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, I think Isaiah, if you're wanting to talk about one player being the story of the entire postseason, I think it would start with LeBron, and then it would probably be Isaiah would be number two. Uh, I mean, put aside the family tragedy, but just like what is going on in his mouth? You know, I mean, this guy's like constantly getting dental surgery left and right, uh, you know, special mouth guards. He missed a little bit of the second half of game two or sorry, game three when he's coming back from getting some adjustments. I mean, how he's doing all of these things uh, in really his first big postseason of his career. I mean, he had, I think, one good game last year, but otherwise, you know, he was kind of a flop in, in the playoffs. Uh, how he's doing all of this with the distractions or whatever you want to call him is is spectacular. Uh, game two was truly special. I mean, his closing down the stretch there. I mean, yes, Boston kind of dodged a bullet there with Bradley Beal at the buzzer. But uh, I mean, you really can't ask for much more than Isaiah. I guess, you know, if you're Washington for a team being down two one, uh, first of all, he looked very confident in game three after what could have been a gut punch loss in game two. I mean, if a weaker team, I think, would have folded after losing game two in overtime and, and taking such a remarkable performance from Isaiah. Uh, their response to me was incredibly impressive and showed that they believe they're the more talented team. Uh, now, are they going to be able to continue to sustain that? I'm not sure, but they've clearly led for most of the series. I mean, that's kind of a stat that's been popping around just the percentage of time of games that they're leading. Uh, and I don't think Boston has a great answer for wall when he's really playing well. Uh, so I think the series is still wide open. You know, I was ready to, to when Markeith went down, you know, I was ready to say, okay, uh, that's the crippling blow, but somehow he's played through the injury too. So, uh, like you're saying, there's a lot of uh, kind of interesting storylines here. Whether it's the you know the Kelly on Kelly violence, or just like the the ability of Markeith Morris to somehow be on the court after a really ugly ankle sprain uh, and and be a contributor too. I mean, I think he's giving them good minutes in these last couple games. Uh, you know, to me, that's you know that that shouldn't be overlooked, and that's a big reason why the series isn't over right now. I picked the Wizards to win in six and I feel naturally a lot worse about that now than I did before for a couple different reasons but the logic behind it was I felt that the Wizards were better starting five versus starting five than the Celtics and I believe that that is held true and oh a hundred percent and I picked Washington for similar reasons uh as soon as Markeith went down I threw my prediction in the trash can because we all know you know Washington's so reliant upon that group that it looks a lot different when one of those guys aren't out there but They've held themselves together. You know, I was really impressed by game three, not just the response, but just how forceful it was. I mean, Boston really had no answers. They were able to finally you know, control Isaiah, at least keep him in check, limit his effectiveness. And, you know, some of those uh, supporting cast guys for the Celtics are really hit or miss. You know, it's very similar to like the Rockets supporting guys. I mean, Boston looked so vulnerable in those first two games against Chicago when their supporting guys weren't hitting shots. And if you're going to trap Isaiah or you're going to force him to pass the ball, those other guys have to step up. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, that happened early in the Chicago series, and I thought it happened in game three as well. Um, if I'm Washington, I'm still feeling confident. You know, I, and We're obviously taping this right before game four, so that could go out the window if they're down 3-1. But uh, I think that they have a lot to take from that game three win. I also think that Washington should walk away from this season, I mean, not feeling perfect, not feeling great, but considering they dealt with, you know, Jan Mahimi being hurt so much, and he's really helped their second unit when he's been able to play, just because he's such a, he's a reliable defensive player, and center is the most important defensive position, and the fact that they're probably going to keep this team together for another three, four years, it's not perfect, you know, I'm not sure they're going to 
win a title with this group, but they can be consistently competitive. And I would consider that a win for Washington, considering that's not where they've been recently. Well, I think the big win is that they nailed three picks in a row, basically with Wall, Beal and Porter. Um, You know, they're going to have to pay for all of them. But when you're looking at some of these teams that have just, you know, come out of lotteries empty handed year after year after year, or some of these teams that we're always talking about, oh, how are they ever going to get somebody to, you know, trade for to kind of save them? I mean, you know, the teams I'm talking about, Lakers, Suns, Magic, on and on and on. I mean, that is a nice run in the lottery to get three, uh, you know, plus starters, you know, at the at the important positions of one, two and three guys who are giving you pretty quality postseason minutes here and are going to be able to grow together. I mean, you're going to take that. And I think both Beal and Porter, to me, their growth this season are big stories. Uh, Beal's ability to stay healthy and play lots of minutes this season for sure is a big story, uh, at least compared to like previous seasons when he was always a question mark. Uh, I think Washington, their long term planning is still a lot up in the air. I mean, they had such great health from their starters this year. And, you know, if you take any one of those guys out, especially given that Jan Mahimi, like you mentioned, was so unreliable for most of the season. Now, you know, let's say Gortat missed six weeks or something like that. You know, what does their season look like? What's their playoff seating look like? Uh, I mean, something as small as that you know, could have changed a lot for them. And, and I worry about, a little bit about regression for that reason. Um, you know, heading into next year, like, you know, just some fluky thing can throw the whole thing off. I mean, sort of like a, a rich man's version of what happened to Detroit this year. Remember last year they had perfect health. Everything works great. They make the playoffs this year. A few things go wrong here and there. They're totally off the radar. Uh, but, you know, all things considered, when you've got those one, two and three spots locked down for the foreseeable future, that's a lot better position to be in, especially when those guys are young or at least in their prime uh, than, you know, a whole bunch of other wannabe contenders. And the reason why this is a, a B storyline is because I don't see either of these teams taking more than one or two games from Cleveland. Neither do I. And I mean, that was kind of my pick the whole way through. When everybody was harping on Cleveland's defense, my counter to that always was, look, Look at their offense. Look at the firepower they've accumulated here. I think compared to the last 10 title teams, Cleveland has a better defense or sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, a better offense and a worse defense than all 10 of those title teams, which kind of crystallizes uh, you know, their, their seasons, kind of a glasses half full, glasses half empty kind of conundrum. You know, you can kind of pick whatever side you want. But to me, their offense has been more than enough to overwhelm everybody so far. I mean, Toronto's not even coming close to having answers for them. And LeBron, with his three-point shot going, is basically unstoppable for teams that don't have both a, an elite perimeter defender or two to throw at him and an elite rim protector who can also uh, you know, spread out and, and play defense in space. Uh, I only see one team left on the board that has those things. That'd be Golden State. And so if we're looking at teams that can truly stop Cleveland, I, I think it would be Golden State. I got to say, I've been really impressed by Cleveland's second unit. Uh, You know, we look at Boston and and kind of consider them a deep team, you know, certainly deeper than Washington. Uh, But if we're talking about, you know, playoff series, would you rather have Boston's reserves or Cleveland's reserves if if they're led by LeBron and it's just LeBron and four shooters? I mean, I'll take Cleveland's group, you know, even if it's older guys, you know, guys who've kind of been laughing stocks maybe in previous years. I'll take that group over Boston's group any day. And I would obviously take you know, Cleveland starters over Boston starters as well. So uh, to me, it's just really hard to make the case that, you know, the Celtics uh, or the Wizards are going to really pose much of a challenge to this Cleveland team, given how well they've played. It's just been a machine-like vibe in Cleveland. 
There's also the the challenge with Cleveland that, yeah, Channing Frye has specific flaws defensively, but in many ways, they're harder to exploit than the flaws that he creates for the other team's defense, because all he has to do is just stand at the three-point line, and you're just sitting there going, crap, well, how do we counter this? Yeah, especially when he's surrounded by three other shooters. I mean, that's the thing, is like, when they go to those lineups, and they've got four shooters plus LeBron as their bench unit, I mean, that is a really high-powered alternative look, and yeah, maybe they're going to give you... Uh, something back on the other end but uh you know the Raptors is a great example like you come out and shoot cold and you can only hit a couple three-pointers in the entire game you can forget about it you have no chance against this team uh, they just have too many guys who can shoot the ball and can get wide open catch and shoot looks created by LeBron so uh, to me Boston I don't know how they stop LeBron at the point of attack I mean I don't love any of their options there I think he's going to be able to get into the paint pretty much at will and that's going to set up their three-point shooting uh, and then also, I don't know how they really you know, contest him much at the rim either. And when you're looking at some of the issues that a guy like Robin Lopez uh, posed for the Celtics, I mean, aren't we going to see the same thing from Tristan Thompson and, and, and Kevin Love as well in terms of hitting the offensive glass, second chance points, extending possessions? I think we're going to see that for sure. Uh, and then if they face the Wizards, uh, again, I mean, those minutes when either Wall or Beal are off the court are going to get so ugly for Washington against uh, Cleveland's uh, second unit group. Uh, that, uh, you know, I would I would really worry for them. And the nice part about these sweeps, you know, or the assumed sweep, at least here in the second round for Cleveland, is that's a lot of time off to rest. You know, like we always harp on these coaches. Uh, oh, you're playing LeBron too many minutes. Well, during the playoffs, if you're playing him 45, 46 minutes, but you only have to play him four times and he gets to rest for a week, like that's not nearly as bad. You know, you'd rather do that than play him 42 minutes uh, over a six-game series. You know, I mean, there's the accumulations a lot less. So, from that standpoint, I think Cleveland, this is basically playing out perfectly for Cleveland. I don't think that they're going to go into that Eastern Conference Finals with any sense of fear at all. And they shouldn't. I mean, especially if it's Boston. They've largely outplayed them over the last couple of years. And I just think that Boston doesn't have enough counters. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to put, they have basically like Jay Crowder and Marcus Smart to put on LeBron. And both those guys can do a little bit. But Cleveland is just such a critical mass of talent that it's it's hard for them to do it. And question I wanted to ask you as somebody who watches the whole league is, is any team Cleveland is going to face before the final, should they get there, better than the Jazz team the Warriors are facing right now? Yeah, it's so tricky. I was going back and forth on that as well because like the Raptors without Lowry are a shell of themselves, right? And like that you can make a really strong argument like the Jazz without Hill are a shell of themselves too. Like there's just not nearly uh, the same group with the same ceiling. Uh, and so it's really tricky. Like I was comparing, like, who would you rather play the Blazers or the Blazers without Nurkic or the Pacers? Like, I think you can make an argument that you'd probably rather play the Blazers. And then I was thinking, well, who would you rather play the Raptors without Lowry or the Jazz without Hill? And I mean, that one's pretty close, too. So uh, I think there's arguments both ways in terms of which one of these super teams has been challenged more. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a huge gap there. I think that ultimately, I think Utah is probably, you know, tougher uh, than that Raptors team, uh, just given their you know, defensive uh, you know, ceiling and, and commitment, uh, their talent level, their wings. I mean, they've got a lot going on there. Uh, and certainly they've looked more competitive than Toronto has. But uh, I'm not sure it's the widest margin, especially if Lowry was healthy. I don't know if I'd say that. It's it's definitely not a wide margin. I would go with the Jazz for another basic reason, which is that they have fewer hiding places. So basically, you know, Toronto, part of what Cleveland has done defensively and it's worked is that they've let their they've let Toronto's bad shooters shoot and their bad shooters have missed. 
Utah struggled to hit some, some of their guys struggled to hit open shots. Not Gordon Hayward, he was fabulous in game three. But the way Toronto just missed everything in game three of that series is kind of a reminder that Cleveland is, Cleveland is getting a little bit of, a little bit of extra Monopoly money to play with in this series. And they're taking advantage of it and full credit to them. I mean, something they also did in the Pacers series, they realized there were like three guys on Indiana that they didn't have to defend and that would make bad decisions or would miss open shots. And they were able to do it. And the Jazz have fewer of those. And also, whoever they're going to play in the next round, the Celtics or the Wizards do, but the Cavs are just still way better than everybody that I don't think that's enough to make up the margin. Yeah, I mean, the whole conference imbalance talk, you know, didn't really get going that much this season. But if you look at like the top three in the West, you know, record wise, all better than Cleveland, I think Cleveland's the only team that would have had home court in the West if everybody played the same schedule this year uh, of those East teams. Uh, and then, you know, you can even look at somebody like DeMar DeRozan, who, you know, he's sort of the lead guy for Toronto at this point. I mean, how many of the West best teams would he even start for? I mean, he definitely would not start for Golden State. Uh, I don't think he would start for San Antonio, given how they like to play and, and his lack of defense, his lack of shooting. Uh, you know, would he start uh, in Utah, uh, potentially? I mean, you just kind of I just still think like, you know, team to team, position to position. Uh, the West talent level is still so much deeper and then always winds up coming out here uh, in the playoffs. And I think we're seeing that again. Uh, I never really fully bought into any of these second tier teams in the Eastern Conference. Uh, all of them, I think, are fun watches. I, I, you know, I consider Toronto even kind of in the middle of this humiliation for them. I mean, they're still pretty fun to watch. I love that they went for it at the trade deadline. You know, Boston's been kind of a fairy tale story with Isaiah. Uh, Washington, you know, salvaging their season, turning it around and, and making such a strong push in the first year under a new coach. Like, that's a great story, too. Like, ultimately, where do those stories end? I mean, I didn't see a ceiling for any of those teams. And to me, that's kind of how it's playing out right now. Yeah, I agree with that. And that ties in with something I wanted to talk with you about. You, you brought up the idea of the, that they went for it, Toronto went for it at the trade deadline. And Obviously, we're when we're recording this, their season isn't over. There's a very real possibility that it will be over before a lot of people listen to this podcast. And because particularly of the moves they made at the trade deadline and also how it looks like this season is going to end, whether it's on Sunday or later on in the week, is they have an incredibly complicated, perilous offseason. They really do. But here's a point I'd like to make on it. There was a lot of benefits of what Masai Ujiri did at the trade deadline. I mean, the first was obvious. He plugged huge holes, right? Like they they needed a wing defender. They needed a power forward. He went out and got those. They also needed a power forward who could swing up to center. And that's kind of who Ibaka was. That was the first benefit. The second benefit was they didn't really give up anything that that truly mattered to them in terms of assets. Uh, those those pieces came pretty cheap. Uh, another benefit was that it was you know, taking place sort of with their main guys, you know, in their prime winning time. And guys like Lowry and DeRozan, the, the clock was already ticking on that combination. They needed some help. And so uh, the help arrived at a good time. But I think the underrated benefit of Ujiri's move at the trade deadline is it now gives him cover to do whatever the heck he wants to do this summer because he can go back to guys like Lowry and DeRozan who were kind of grumbling and asking for help during the middle of the season and say, look, I had a better trade deadline than anybody in the league. What do you want me to do? I gave you guys the help. Lowry, you couldn't stay healthy. DeMar, you couldn't score consistently enough and, and lead the offense well enough during the playoffs. Uh, now I've got to go a different direction. And not only can he go to those guys, and I don't think he would clearly be this confrontational with his players, uh, but, I mean, that can be an argument that he would make. But he can also go to the fan base and say the same thing. as like, look, guys, I went out there. Uh, I made the best moves I, I possibly could for this team. 
uh, it's hit its ceiling and we have to retool if, if we're going to try to sustain this, uh, given how expensive guys like Ibaka, Lowry, uh, and even Tucker could become. And given the question mark that's sort of hanging over, uh, you know, a player like Valanciunas, you know, do you trade him? Do you not trade him? And, and how do you go forward? So I think the nice part here uh, is we have a very talented executive in Ujiri who now is completely empowered to do whatever he wants to do. And there's not really much of a counter argument. Like if he blows it up, who can reasonably say, oh, you gave up on a contender? You know, that argument is no longer there. So uh, I think uh, I think that is one of the quiet benefits of his uh, his busy uh, trade deadline season. I like that concept of it. And also, I'm sure that he did those moves with ownership's full understanding of what it could mean if it worked out, which means that he might have the financial flexibility to, at least for a short time, maybe a season or two, go forward with this lineup if they really do want to try it. And I'm not saying they would be the best team in the East or anything like that, but I would be totally fine seeing this Raptors team again for another season or two. I mean, it's it's better than some of the alternatives. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a contrast with the Clippers because like everybody's kind of making that comparison, teams that maybe can't get over the hump or teams that are about to get really, really expensive. And I think the advantage that Toronto has is that their supporting cast pieces, uh, first of all, they have a lot more younger talent than, than LA does. And I know you've harped on Doc's drafting and his his respect for draft picks for years. It's a great point. It's really coming back to get them this season. But like, let's just say you're Lowry. I mean, if the question would become, do you even want to go back to Toronto? Well, obviously they can offer you the most money, but like, does this have, uh, is this a team that has upside? And you can make a reasonable case that if they keep together most of the core, they're still one of the deeper, more talented rosters in the East. They've got a pretty proven formula of being able to win around 50 games. I mean, there are a lot worse situations than that. Whereas if you're Blake Griffin in LA, uh, you know, you're potentially looking, OK, you resign with the Clippers. Well, what if J.J. Reddick goes somewhere else? What if Mbaa Mute gets too expensive? Now, all of a sudden, you're playing in a starting lineup that's going to have Austin Rivers and, and Wesley Johnson. I mean, that that's a tougher sell, especially when you don't know who the bench guys are. and You're going to have to completely turn over that unit with guys who are on veteran uh, minimum contracts. I mean, that's that's a much different outlook. So I think, you know, long story short, the pressure on Toronto to completely blow it up. Uh, is less than this Clippers comparison that's been thrown out there. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, financially, I mean, is this really something that you think that they should undertake? And if the decision is, look, let's pay Lowry because he's got a couple more years in all NBA level, which I think he does, or you know, close to it, all star level. Let's pay Ibaka because he's indispensable to the front line in terms of what you're going to need to to play with the best teams in the Eastern Conference stylistically. Uh, and let's keep DeRozan because he's sort of the face of the franchise. Everybody in Toronto loves him. I mean, if that's your core group, then you have to start making choices around those guys. And to me, uh, I mean, one way to kind of retool this would be to just dump Jonas, uh, you know, basically however you can, uh, bring those three guys back, uh, open up more time for a guy like Pirtle, turn, o- turn over more minutes to those young bigs, uh, and try to keep it together that way. I mean, do you think that they can make that work financially? I do. I feel like I'm cannibalizing my own off-season preview, but that's fine. And I think that cost mitigation is a very interesting part of what Toronto does because they don't really have that much in the way of bad contracts. There can be an argument about Damari Carroll that I'm not sure somebody's going to love him enough to, to throw that money at him his remaining years. But Valanciunas, I think it's hard to trade centers now, but I, I can certainly see him having a cheering section and you know maybe a team that doesn't that isn't the best recruiter of free agents that just basically is sitting there later on in the process and going hey you know like we can, we can't do we can't do better with our money than him for a year or two 
I could totally see that. You know, that that's a reasonable interpretation. The other cost mitigation point, and it's less saved money than other things, is Corey Joseph. Yeah, Corey Joseph's from Toronto, and he's a reasonable contract, but that's the whole point. If they feel comfortable in Van Vliet or DeLon Wright or something like that, he's, I think, about $7 million. That $7 million is not that much, but when you factor in the fact that they could be in the luxury tax, it looks a lot bigger. And so if they could move him to any number of teams, I don't think there, I don't think it would be hard to find a, a place for him at all. And the other huge fallback for the Raptors is they have a lot of other talent. Like they have young guys who they can reasonably believe in. Bebe Noguera, if he's your backup five or even your your fourth big man, that can work. Van Vliet, DeLon Wright, you know, you can you can use those guys. Those guys are still on cheap contracts. Those are the types of moves that allow you to to trade those other guys. And also, they still have a first-round pick this year. Yes, they lost Terrence Ross, and that doesn't help. And yes, they lost a first-round pick in that deal. A late, late first-round pick and then two terrible seconds for P.J. Tucker. Okay, not a big deal. They can they still have other assets. Yeah, I didn't think the prices there were that big. And, I mean, if you've got Norm Powell, it's like, okay, Terrence Ross, whatever. Uh, I think this team needed an amnesty clause almost more than anybody, right? Like, what have the amnesty clause just been perfect for Damari Carroll and made their life so much easier, just move forward? Well, and with, uh, De- and with Damari, the idea of an amnesty clause is interesting, and this was an argument I made when I, I argued that the Warriors, if they had kept it instead of amnestying Charlie Bell, could have used for David Lee, is that in terms of actually saving money, Damari Carroll would actually probably get a decent bid in amnesty. So you're you're saving even more money because that comes off the book. So like, let's say a team's like, hey, we'll pay Damari Carroll six, seven million a year. Well, then it's not even that expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to keep the band together, we pretty much identified it. It's trade Jonas, trade Corey, try to trade Damari, pray for it. You're probably not going to be able to find it, but at least try. Pay Kyle, pay Ibaka. Uh, and then trust these young guys. I think that's sort of the way to, that's like the medium road. Uh, I am curious to hear your thoughts though. Like, let's say they decide it's time to do something a little bit more radical and it comes down to like, okay, do we pay Kyle or do we pay DeRozan? We just can't have both those guys as max guys in the backcourt on such long-term contracts, given the pretty hard ceiling that that duo's got, you know, in terms of the postseason, their track record together is not great. And probably getting worse in terms of you know how long can these guys reasonably expect to like make a conference finals you know it's a pretty reasonable question given kyle's age if you had to pay kyle and and then as part of that trading derozan or just keeping derozan and letting kyle go which which path would you prefer i don't think that derozan can be a central part of a really, really good team. He can be a part of a team about as good as Toronto is right now. I mean, they have wonderful supporting talent. And to me, if you're going to go away from the two of them together, I would either keep Lowry and trade DeRozan or lose both of them. Because Nate and I were were free-flowing a little bit on this on the Twitter NBA show after game three. And what what I was talking about was if Toronto wants to blow it up, they need to have the confidence, Ujiri does, to blow it all the way up. Because if they keep DeRozan they're going to be too good to get the picks that will eventually make them good again. So yeah. they, need, they need to figure that out. And so I would lean in that in that stance towards trading DeRozan. However, that is such a hard thing to ask of ownership, to ask of your fan base, because DeMar DeRozan is a really good player. You know, he's a legitimate all-star. As much as I think that what he does will never work in the playoffs just because the opposing talent gets better in a way that specifically hurts him, you can't knock the fact that he has been a, a pivotal, essential part of the best run in their franchise history. Yeah, I guess where I'm going with this is that a big fork of their offseason should be 
exploring trade possibilities for him. Because if a team like the Lakers, who we've kind of, you know, have questioned their front office, like if they decide DeRozan is the star that they need to make a splash, like he's the best guy they can get. They, they can't get George. They can't get Jimmy Butler. Well, what about taking on DeMar DeRozan? Uh, if you can get like a real quality return package from, you know, a new front office that maybe doesn't know what it's doing, it doesn't quite understand you know, the the limitations of DeRozan's games in the playoffs and frankly doesn't even care about that because they just want to have a shot at making the playoffs. That is something that I would certainly look at if I was Toronto, because then let's say you're getting multiple, you know, you're getting a quality young player, multiple draft picks, something like that. And you've, you've got the rest of the, the ability now to keep Lowry, uh, maybe keep Tucker and keep Ibaka. That could be great. I mean, that could turn into a situation where you're you're winning now and also setting yourself up really nicely for the future. So if I was Toronto, I definitely would think about something along those lines. But yes, the emotional pull in terms of keeping DeRozan is very high. And I think the emotional pressure to bring back Lowry is going to be pretty high, too. And the reason why I say that, everyone's incredibly frustrated with him right now. Another injury, another big letdown. I mean, it's happened before. Uh, can he stay healthy? You know, To me, the solution to that is not cast him aside and pray that these backup guards uh, are going to be able to save the day. I mean, that's going to be a huge downgrade. It's going to be very hard to replace what he does. They look totally different when he's injured down the stretch of the season in terms of how functional their offense looks. I mean, it gets really gimmicky really quickly. Uh, To me, the answer is pay him and then figure it out in terms of minutes limits where whether it Dwayne's the coach next season or whoever's coaching them, you got to scale him back. You know, you got to take some of those losses in, in December and February to preserve his body because they just really haven't done that. And uh, it's been a consistent issue, not only for Lowry, but DeRozan as well. Uh, and, they, and they've had this chance now where they've been in the mix and, you know, trying to run the gauntlet through the regular season to stack up the win total. I mean, they've proven that they, they can do that. I think it's time to, you know, if you do bring these guys back, it's time to step off the accelerator a little bit, take a few more regular season losses with the big picture in mind. And I think he can learn something in that way from not only the Spurs, but from the team he used to be an assistant coach on, the Mavericks. I think the Mavericks have done a nice job with Dirk over the last couple of years, even though they haven't made the playoffs, of just being like, hey, if we're going to extend this guy's life, we need to make sure we don't push him too hard. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think part of the problem when you have a coach on the hot seat is, what does he do? (laughs) He runs his stars out there for as many uh, minutes as possible. And I mean, if you're looking for another way to to shift directions, you know, a coaching change is something that they have to look at. And I'm I'm generally a Dwayne defender, you know, pretty much. I think his ability to to get this many wins and this much postseason success out of kind of broken pieces, you know, with a guy like DeRozan and and some of these other pieces that you know I think a lot of other coaches would have gotten less out of deserves a lot of praise uh, but you know that is another way you could kind of you know retool on the fly or kind of change the story around your organization is okay we're bringing back most of these players we didn't make a crazy offseason splash we probably lost a couple guys because we couldn't afford them all but we've got a new coach going forward I mean that's something else I'm, I'm sure they'll look at and Ujiri hasn't been able to hire his coach whoever that would be he took over the job right. Casey was already there and so that's always something you look for even a couple years into it but I, I think Casey's done a, a solid job getting his players to buy in and that's always an important part of what a head coach does but it, it could be a time just for somebody who who brings in a different approach and can do it that way I had floated the idea of Thibodeau there for a while of course now he is he settled into his own job but yeah it's it's certainly something they can should consider and Toronto has so much that they're that they have to weigh 
in a really, really short period of time. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But I know you have to go. I have one quick question for you, which is we're about a week and a half away from the lottery, which it, we, we lose sight of because of the playoffs, but the lottery is going to be very important this year. Have you given any thought to what, not, not what you think it's going to be because predicting odds is kind of silly, but what you would like the result of the top three to be? Well, I was very frustrated how the Lakers managed their stretch run. And even though it's like working against my own best interest because I'm here in L.A. and I would like to see them actually be good, I kind of think they should be punished for how many accidental wins they had down the stretch. It's like they almost don't deserve to keep their pick given how uh, badly they mangled that. I guess I'm if I had to pick one, I am on board with. Well, first of all, Orlando made the right move in moving on from Hennigan. So I would like to see that reward with a top three pick. Uh, They can really use a talent infusion. So let's get them in the mix. But I think my dream scenario is the Sixers dream scenario, which is Philly gets one and four. And now we're talking about a new contender has risen. Uh, I think that's sort of what I'm rooting for with Orlando getting maybe, uh, you know, number two or or number three in there as well. Completely logical approach. Mine is similar, but different in, in, in a couple basic ways. So the way that I like to think about it, because I, I don't think I've ever written the piece, but I think about this every year. And so for me, you start out at number one with, okay, who would be the most interesting for Mark Fultz? And to me, there are two different answers for that. One, my A1 would be Minnesota. I think Minnesota, as much as I love Ricky Rubio, he ratchets up their ceiling. He's a guy that fits in their timeline. They have the six best odds. It's a reasonable chance. I think they have like a 5% at number one overall. That's about as far as I'll go in terms of outlandish for the number one pick. The other one to me would be Boston, just because that opens up a Pandora's box of interesting possibilities for them. I think Boston is one of the most compelling teams in the league. Then at two, I mean, while the second pick could be Tatum, it could be Lonzo or anything like that. So let's say I have Minnesota one. That also starts to set the table for the Lakers being for, I think, the most fascinating place for Lonzo Ball. I think he's better with good surrounding talent, and I think he's better if he can play a little bit more off-ball, because in case he can't create separation, which is a worry for me. So then, to me, the two options for him are Philly. I think he, I think Philly is kind of like then with him becomes that next-gen team of like making it work. Yeah, there's some ego problems with him and Simmons. Both guys want the ball all the time, but I think that could work. And then Boston, if they don't get the one pick, because Lonzo makes everything better. So I think that could really work with what Boston's doing. And then the third pick, uh, yeah, Orlando's a fine one there, or the Sixers if they're not getting two. So basically, basically something like Minnesota one, Boston or Philly two, then Orlando or Philly or Boston three, and then the Lakers at four would be an amazing outcome. Yeah, I'm going to go... Philly one, Orlando two, Boston three, Philly four. I think that's my preferred outcome. Uh, you're right. We need to keep Boston in this mix just so that we have the maximum, you know, trade possibilities or uh, you know, total like balance of power shifting possibilities. Uh, I love the Minnesota idea. I mean, I think that would be uh, that would be pretty awesome. I mean, what about uh, what about New Orleans? Oh, New Orleans getting a top three pick would be amazing. I was gonna I, say, I, what about what about him for Fultz though? Like, what if? Fultz oh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, be- <laughs> especially because there's been, there have been some murmurs about the idea of whether Drew Holiday is going to stay. And if Drew Holiday leaves, they don't have enough payroll flexibility to really get to where they need to to add a high-level rookie point guard. Or, sorry, a high-level veteran point guard. So in that case, then the best thing you can hope for is a rookie, and Markel would be awesome. Yeah, the downside there is, like, can you convince DeMarcus to be patient through a rookie point guard season? The upside there is, like, 
a freaking awesome team that would be really fun to watch for like the next five or six years. I've toyed a little bit with the idea of what would it take for New Orleans to trade Cousins before, let's say, the deadline, the deadline next season or earlier. And actually getting a top pick like that could be one way that it happens because at that point, the choice is very different. Yeah, and, I, and we'll see. I mean, I think everything is on the table for that Pelicans team to me with regard to Cousins because um, – you know, we saw it with Ibaka, you know, and I think Cousins is much more volatile than Ibaka. It's like if your plan doesn't work, you know, and it, let's say they start out slow and, you know, maybe Gentry gets thrown under the bus and now you're trying to bring in a new coach midseason or, or you know, interim coach situation, like that's going to be hard to keep somebody like that happy. So to me, yeah, this this whole Pelicans thing is definitely one to watch. I don't think they settled anything by trading, trading for Cousins, and in fact, quite the opposite. I think that they only raised more questions than answers. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. Anything else you feel like we need to discuss? No, I mean, how are you feeling on your finals pick? I mean, have you changed it all, or where are you on that? No, still there. Warriors over Cavs. I, I don't remember if I ever picked a number of games, but I, I still think that's the way that it's going to go. I posited the idea on Twitter yesterday that Cleveland could lose four total games in the playoffs, and I think that would be... <laughs> The single greatest representation of what this season was, if Cleveland goes undefeated through the East and then loses, I mean, even if it's like six or seven games, loses in the finals. It's hilarious. The last time I checked, Golden State was on pace to have the best point differential of a champion ever, assuming they win it. Now, that might fall off a little bit if they drop one here or there, but... Um, they're in that conversation after having one of the best point differentials during the regular season of all time. So I tend to trust that. I will say, though, LeBron's postseason run here has been truly special. If anyone's going to beat this Warriors team, it's obviously going to be him. And I don't know, I, I to, to kind of bring this full circle, everyone's been kind of poo-pooing the playoffs. I'm only more excited now than I was two weeks ago at the thought of Warriors Cavaliers three. And I was really excited at that point, too. Well, we were both in the building for game seven of that finals. And that's what gives this so much juice is the idea that as much as we think we know, we've already seen it defy expectations. Yeah. And LeBron's hitting his threes. And like to me, that is that's the wild card. You know, that opens up so much for them. I don't know if I trust their defense to stick with Golden State if they're really moving the ball. Uh, But also at the same time, I don't know if I totally trust Kevin Durant. Uh, in late game situations with LeBron James on the court and a title on the line. You know, I just think there's there's still some open uh, question marks and and uh, possible fissure points. So I want to see it. Uh, I think we're on track for it. And that's my main takeaway. I know I'm kind of selling uh, optimism here and sunshine, but uh, I think we should only be more thrilled at the possibility of this uh, this uh, finals matchup than ever before. I'll still stick with my Warriors pick too, by the way, but uh, but Cleveland's made it more interesting. They certainly have, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. And Cleveland can still play better than they have so far overall. I mean, LeBron can't probably, but but the other guys in total, I think they, you know, Kyrie hasn't been the best so far. I think Kyrie can play better. Love has had some shaky games. So I, I, I expect more out of Cleveland than they've shown, and they've already been very good. Agreed. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right, Danny. Take care, man. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can and should read him at Sports Illustrated, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love talking with him, and as I said at the in the intro, I think that it can be a challenging time to go through a lot of the different things at once, and especially when you're doing it, trying to cover a lot of different angles. It's great to have somebody who can go through it all, and I love talking with Ben about it. And as was alluded to in the 
podcast, I'm starting to work on my off-season preview stuff. I'm hoping that they're going to start coming out this week. I actually have written three over the last four or five days and really going to get in. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I do off-season previews for all 30 teams. It is a part of the prep. And then for Dunked On, we also do podcast segments on all 30 teams. And those two things run together. I actually use the pieces as prep for dunked on and his prep for the whole thing because it all runs together. It's all knowledge that works in the same vein. So those will start coming out in the near future. Very, very excited about that. Also had a piece for the sporting news about how hard it's going to be to trade centers this year that I think is is interesting. And it started out as kind of how the Raptors can trade or could try to trade Valanciunas. That's actually the concept I was working from when the idea for the piece came about. So it was relevant to the conversation we had with Ben, but I didn't want to keep falling back on my own work. So we didn't talk about it as explicitly there, but a lot of fun stuff going on. Of course, the playoffs are still excellent. If you want to check out my my work, you can read the sporting news. You can read The Athletic, which is where my Warrior stuff go goes. You can listen to Locked on Warriors. You can watch the Twitter NBA show and dunked on the two projects I do with Nate Duncan. And we also started a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue is a way of checking that out. And I'm going to have some work, hopefully in the very near term, for Real GM, working on the CBA encyclopedia and other elements as well. I, I love doing work for them, and I'm deeply appreciative of how flexible they've been with me, considering working on the book and everything else has moved my timelines for just about all the other written work that I do other than the Warriors stuff. And the athletic has been wonderful as well. So expect me to to kind of make up for lost time in terms of all the stuff that I wanted to do before the start of free agency. That's really going to start kicking in in the very near future. So you can check all of that as it, as it comes. Also want to thank the CLNS Radio family, and you can check out this podcast and many other great ones on CLNS Radio. And then if you want to support this show and really any others that you like, subscribe, download every episode. That's especially relevant with a show like Real Jam Radio, which has an inconsistent publishing schedule. And then also you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's iTunes because iTunes is still really important in this business, but whatever it is, it really does help. I use Overcast. Overcast is wonderful. They're not a sponsor. I just think they're great. And the other way that you can support this show, it really does mean a lot, is go to SeatGeek, buy a great place to buy and sell tickets, the one I've used for years. And if you go under the settings tab, you enter the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, and that will give you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. It's pretty cool. They just, you buy the tickets you were probably going to buy anyway, and you get 20 bucks back and you tell them you came from us. So that's a great thing you can do to support us. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com at Danny LaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond. I don't have the time. I'm very, very busy, but appreciate everything. And and I get wonderful feedback all the time and I really do appreciate it. And when it's, you know, when it's negative, if it's constructive, I'm good with that. I say good, bad, or indifferent for a very specific reason. It's because I welcome all of it. So if it's constructive, all the better though. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen, take care and make it a great day.
Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. improves children's health by developing better treatments and technologies. Ranked one of the top children's hospitals in the nation, we take on the most complex, rare, and life-threatening conditions because all children deserve a healthy future. And with our new pediatric-focused research and innovation campus, we are generating and sharing even more discoveries because at Children's National Hospital, we want to help every child grow up stronger. Learn more at childrensnational.org slash innovation. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea. Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama.